Good morning. morning. We turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 2. Zephaniah chapter 2. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just command. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the sea coast, you nation of the Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O sea coast, shall be pastures, with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The sea coast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they've taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations." You also, O Cushite, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh and desolation a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations... Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. 
but all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you cause this word to be written for us that we might hear of you as well as of our world and of ourselves. And so we pray, take from us every distraction this morning so that we might hear your truth, believe it, repent and obey it to your great glory. Amen. It's been an interesting week, hasn't it? Um, a scare campaign uh, suggesting Christian schools are on the brink of ejecting a truckload of pupils on the basis of their sexuality alone. Totally fabricated, of course, but that didn't make any difference. Snowballing into promises of legislation and then yesterday, an attempt to force the agenda by removing certain religious and conscientious objections from the Sex Discrimination Act for all educational institutions. The misinformation and aggression seemed to just keep on mounting through the week. On an increasing number of fronts, it seems, the Christian faith is under attack. And as we were reminded yesterday so powerfully during our day of prayer, we do not have an unblemished record we can appeal to in order to argue that these attacks are just not fair. Now, I know that uh, much of what has happened this week is politically motivated. A more interesting than usual federal by-election is being held tomorrow, only a few kilometres from here. But whatever the motivation, those who have long opposed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the summons to faith and repentance that is embedded in it are rubbing their hands together in glee. The total demise of Christian influence on our society, its laws, institutions and customs, seems assured to them and even imminent. Christians and Christian leaders are mocked and pilloried. An alternate agenda is pursued without restraint in the press, on television and a number of recent movies. It can seem as if people who have been frustrated for so long have at last seen their chance and now, all at once and at an alarming pace, they're going to take it no matter what the consequences. And the moment of their total and complete victory seems very close. And yet, stubbornly, men and women are still being converted right across this city. I've been hearing stories this week as I've attended uh, the Anglican Synod of people in very different parts of this city who put their trust in Jesus as faithful friends have shared the gospel with them. Staunch opponents of the gospel being turned around. Those who've never given Jesus a serious thought, finding themselves simply gripped by the message he brings of forgiveness and freedom and hope. It is not all unremitting darkness and catastrophe. 
Though one set of stories gets much more airtime, it's not the only set of stories we could tell. God is at work in our world at this moment, rescuing men and women from the wrath to come. And that's a great thing, isn't it? That God has not abandoned us entirely to what we deserve and that he's still doing the astonishingly wonderful work of drawing people of different types in different places at different speeds to himself by drawing them to the Saviour. Well, last week when we began this little series of sermons on Zephaniah, we were faced with something that did look rather like unremitting darkness, defeat and catastrophe. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom. In the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed, for he will make a full and sudden end of all the inhabitants of the earth. The kingdom of Judah, in the time of great King Josiah no less, but a kingdom with no claim at all on God, unable to defend themselves against his charge of unfaithfulness. A kingdom where idolatry and self-interest were deeply rooted, And what lay ahead of them was catastrophic, an undoing of creation, distress on all humankind, their compromise and complacency, violence and fraud laid bare. Now remember, we wanted to bear that weight, the weight of that, for a moment or so last week, and not rush too quickly to any note of hope that there might be in the book of this prophet. We need to see how black the situation was and how black the situation is today for it's only when it is pitch black that the light in the distance can be seen. Well, at first glance, it might seem as if there's more unremitting darkness in this central section of Zephaniah. Sure, there's a call to gather in chapter 2, verse 1, but by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 8, it's God who's doing the gathering For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them the mighty indignation in all my burning anger. But take a careful look at how this plays out and you might see something different. It is a catalogue of national disaster, one nation after another. But realise which other nations highlighted in this central section of the prophecy the coastland of the Philistines, that long-standing enemy of God's people, the region that had troubled the Davidic kingdom and then the southern kingdom decade after decade since the Israelites arrived in the land, the region that had lured and destroyed Samson in the time of the judges, the region that had nurtured Goliath, the great enemy of King David. Four of the five great cities of the Philistines are mentioned by name. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod and Ekron. With their possessions of the ports on the Mediterranean coast, the Philistines had great wealth. But it's all going to be gone. And did you see why? It's there right at the end of the section in verse 7. 
The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and, the houses of, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. And here it is. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. The Philistines had harassed the Israelites all through their history in the Promised Land. They were the ones responsible for the death and post-mortem mutilation of Israel's first king, Saul. But judgment was about to fall because the Lord, the God of the Israelites, was mindful of his people and promised to restore their fortunes. The Philistines do not win. Their years of aggression will in the end amount to nothing. Next in the series were the Moabites and the Ammonites, those proud, mocking, self-sufficient nations descended from Lot and his daughters. They'd fought with Israel too, but perhaps even more significantly, they had taunted and reviled. Who? Did you notice the words? My people. And they'd do it again on that day when Nebuchadnezzar raised Jerusalem and carried away its people. They'll laugh and mock and say, at last we're rid of them. But their judgment will come. This shall be their lot in return for their pride. Because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. It will be terrifying. It will be awesome. Awesome in the real sense, not in the sense my daughters use the word. It will be awesome. And those who laughed at every misfortune of God's people and who mocked Israel's God will be famished and brought low. Moab and Ammon do not win. Their mockery will, in the end, amount to nothing. And the same is true of the Cushites. The ruling dynasty of Egypt at that time had been Ethiopian, so perhaps this is a way of referring to the whole of Egypt, that perennial enemy of Judah and Israel. And the Assyrians, those who had swept away the northern kingdom, they might at various points have been the superpowers of the region. They may have treated Israel as their plaything, their battleground, a non-entity of no importance, a land they just tramped on, as they march through to face each other. But they will both be laid waste. They will be defeated. Nineveh and its rulers may have boasted, I am and there is no one else. But that was always a lie and it will be shown to be a lie. My people, the Lord says, my nation, neither Egypt nor Assyria win. Their military might their international prestige will, in the end, amount to nothing. Now, each of these great nations had set themselves against the people God had chosen for himself. Each, in their own way, had sought to break them, destroy them, humiliate them. But when God gathers the nations for the final judgment, they will be there as the humiliated ones. Throughout human history, there has been one attempt after another to snuff out God's people and to silence the message they have to proclaim to the world. That was true of Old Testament Israel. It has always been true of the Christian church from the time of the New Testament onwards. 
Sometimes the weapons have indeed been physical and military. The great persecutions of the early church, the purges of Stalin, the cultural revolution of Mao, the catalogue would be too long to list. Sometimes it's been ridicule, crude or sophisticated. Sometimes it's been intellectual marginalisation, the lie that no thinking person could ever believe these things, that the very notion of God is something that we've outgrown. Sometimes the very modern techniques of mass media, political agitation and legislative change are used. But it is not something new. It is never something new. Jesus himself said it, didn't he? If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And yet there is a day of reckoning. The communist opponents of the gospel will not win, just as the persecuting Roman uh, emperors did not win. Neither will the new atheists, the secularists, or whatever lobby group of the day seeks to hijack the national agenda in order to vent its fury at Christ, his gospel and his people. Whatever it is they bring to the battle will in the end amount to nothing. But just like ancient Israel, we do not stand and cannot stand as the innocent who plead our innocence and call on God to do the right thing and vindicate us. As elsewhere in the writing of the Old Testament prophets, the list doesn't stop with the neighbouring nations who have set themselves against God's people. It reaches into the chosen people themselves. It is time, Peter wrote, for judgment to begin at the household of God. So the oppression perpetrated by God's own people Stubborn injustice, manipulation of the word of God, treating with contempt what God treats as holy, wantonly violating God's law, refusing to listen to challenge and rebuke and a call to repent, but instead being all the more eager to make all their deeds corrupt. All of that is answered by God's judgment. Extraordinary privileges were given to God's people under the Old Covenant. The word of the living God, the promises and their first partial fulfilments in the land, the temple and the king, redemption, sacrifice, thanksgiving. They knew the true God, not the foolish, empty pretense of the nations around them. Think of that moment when Elijah stood on Mount Carmel and exposed the foolish, empty pretense of the nations around them who worshipped Baal. But they refused to listen. They let their hearts wander. They were led astray to other gods who are no gods at all. They lost their first love. And so they too stand under judgment. God, you see, is not mocked. Whether it's by outright pagans or by his people, He does not pretend this has not happened. He will, in fact, he must deal with it. And so even the kingdom of Judah will not win. All its empty religion will, in the end, amount to nothing. And I don't need to spell it out, do I? 
we who have had far greater privileges, much more precious promises, yet in whom the world has very much more than just a foothold, we do not have an unblemished record either individually or collectively, and it is not hidden from God. It is not unknown. We cannot claim to be outside the circle of judgment any more than the kingdom of Judah could. Left to ourselves, left to ourselves, we are no better than those who stand aloof and mock the gospel. And so at this point at least, and in this way, the words spoken to the faithless kingdom of Judah resonate with us, don't they? For after all, from whom much is given, much will be required. So friends, feel the weight of Zephaniah's prophecy for just a few moments more. Let's not let ourselves off the hook too quickly. This is not a don't worry, be happy moment. These intense and graphic pictures of judgment, as one writer called them, need to be taken seriously. They give you a perspective from which to see the scale of the cross, but they must first give you a perspective to see the magnitude of human sin, even amongst God's people. The outspoken opponents, mockers and enemies of the cross of Christ and just as guilty the compromised people of God. So bear it for a moment, but we cannot stay there, can we? There is even here a a slender thread of grace and mercy woven through these terrifying words of judgment. We couldn't help but notice it at various points on the way through. The call to seek God now before the decree takes effect before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. These words were given then and now, not just to announce the terrible reckoning to come, but to warn and to call us to repentance and so to offer life. Look at verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Perhaps you may be hidden, hidden in Augustus to Plato's famous rock of ages, hidden in the blood of Jesus, as Hampton Sewell put it 200 years later, hidden in the day of the anger of the Lord. And there's the hint, just a hint at this point, that judgment is not the final word. And you see it again and again, the remnant of the house of Judah in verse 7, of whom the Lord will be mindful, the survivors of my nation who shall possess the land of their enemies in verse 9, my people, my nation, the people of the Lord of hosts, in his judgment, true and fierce though it is, he does not give up on his purposes and he does not trample the promise he has made. Read Zephaniah chapter 2 and recognise that those who oppose God's people, who ridicule or assault them, who try to hem them in or wipe them out, will not win in the end. Whether in 7th century Palestine or 21st century Australia, ignoring, mocking or railing at God, his word, his people, 
has a fatal emptiness about it. Political manoeuvring, intellectual censorship, social engineering, legal restraint, violent persecution, none of it will succeed in the end. It all comes to nothing. But that is not because there is something better or more virtuous or more faithful in us who feel so acutely the hostility of the world. We deserve judgment too. Our hope is not and can never be in what we are, what we've done, a higher standard of morality or integrity or faithfulness in us. And so we're taken to one little verse tucked away in the middle of this section that points us to our only hope. It's in chapter 3 and it's verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. All opposition to God and his purpose will be undone, even that which lingers in our own hearts. Those who despise Christ and his gospel might seem to have a clear path to victory and we might be appalled by our own compromise, fragility and failure, but none of those things will triumph because the Lord within her is righteous. There is an unblinking light in the darkness. There is a solid hope in the midst of our confusion. Our hope, our only hope, is found somewhat paradoxically in the very one determined to judge such folly, in God himself and his unchangeable character. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. His righteousness is never compromised it's never diverted, it's never defeated, it's never undone. He is and always is the righteous one. And our great hope lies ultimately in the great demonstration of his righteousness, the cross of the Christ, from which we hear the words of triumph, it is finished. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this warning, this call to repentance, for this reminder that all opposition to you will be undone. And we want even the opposition to you that lingers in our own hearts to be undone as well. But we thank you too for the reminder of who you are, for your unchanging righteousness. And we delight that you have put that on full display in your Son, in whom is our only hope. And so we pray in his name.